Welcome back to the Joyful Catholic Leaders Show, where you'll hear stories and insights from those who lead with faith. Be sure to like, subscribe, and give us a five-star review if you're so inclined. As the calendar turns to 2023, we thought it'd be fruitful to look back at the year that was here on the show. We are so grateful to you for listening and to all our guests who came on this past year from Jeff Cavins to Father Donald Calloway to some of the St. Paul Seminary's own seminarians and leaders. What follows is a sampling from six of our guests in 2022. You'll hear from Rector of the St. Paul Seminary, Father Joseph Taphorn, as well as Paul Ruff, who leads the psychological counseling team here at the seminary. Both of them talked about the very important topic of mental health, both for seminarians and for Catholic priests. We also talked to the seminary's own Jeff Cavins, in addition to his work as a renowned catechist, all the great stuff he does with Ascension, the Bible in a Year, and Catechism in a Year podcast with Father Mike Schmitz, a St. Paul Seminary alum, and all the other great work that Jeff does. He is an instructor here at the seminary. And we talked about all kinds of stuff. You can go back and listen to that episode. But wanted to share with you what Jeff's definition of a great leader is, looking at it through sort of a theological and scriptural lens. He also gives some examples of leaders from the Bible. And we also talked a little bit, kind of dovetailing off that of, what it looks like to be a great leader, but also a great follower and kind of the true meaning of discipleship. That is very relevant in Jeff's world right now. He is also the founder of the Catechetical Institute, which is doing some great work in helping implement the local synod priorities here in the Archdiocese and the Catechetical Institute through the seminary continues to grow. I know Jeff's proud of that as well. So we talked a little bit about discipleship. You attend the Catechetical Institute, you are sure to become a better and more activated disciple. On maybe a more serious note, we talked to Father Philip Bochansky. He is the Executive Director of Courage, which is a Catholic apostolate for those dealing with same-sex attraction. And we had a great and very important, uh, relevant, timely conversation about uh, homosexuality and transgenderism and the church's teaching on these topics. And he gave some really good practical advice for how Catholics can uh, show love and show uh, compassion toward those dealing with same-sex attraction and transgender tendencies and uh, kind of maybe set the record straight a little bit on Catholic teaching regarding these uh, very hot-button issues in our culture and society today. Speaking of our culture and society today, the next guest we'll feature here on the Best of 2022 is Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. That is sort of the political lobbying arm on behalf of the bishops here in the state of Minnesota. And right before midterm elections, had a great conversation about politics and religion with Jason. And finally, you'll hear from one of the seminary's own seminarians, a little bit redundant, but Deacon Kyle Etzel is from the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, and is set for priestly ordination in the spring of 2023. So we have officially reached the year that Deacon Kyle and a few of his classmates will become priests, which, as you can imagine, is always a very exciting time here at the seminary. Deacon Kyle shares his vocation story in that episode, which I encourage you to go back and listen to. Uh, But in this excerpt, he talks about the work that he and other seminarians have done with young adults, uh, both here on campus and out in the St. Paul 
community, something that's very near and dear to his heart and, frankly, uh, crucially important for the future of the church. So I'll let you hear that from him as well as some of our other guests from the past year. Here is the best of 2022 edition of the Joyful Catholic Leaders Show. Today, we're joined by Father Joseph Taphorn, rector of the St. Paul Seminary. Mental health is a big topic in our society across the board, but a particular point of emphasis for priests on this day and age. Uh, why, why is that, do you think, and, and what's being done to, to ensure the mental health of, of seminarians and priests as they move into Yeah, well, I, again, I think it goes back to this um, insight of John Paul II that the priest and his human personality has to be a bridge to Jesus Christ. And so we would say that that human uh, formation is, is the foundation. If you think of the building, it's like the building blocks. And if, 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 if the humanity is, and everybody has their stuff, right? I mean, welcome to the human race. We no know doubt. the effects of original sin. Uh, we certainly see in our culture today just challenges uh, growing up and, and whether it may be um, issues from home, uh, broken homes, or uh, what, whatever it is. There's just a lot of stuff in our culture that, that makes it hard to be well integrated and healthy. Uh, anxieties on the rise, depressions on. This is just not just among young people or seminarians, but just across our whole world. Yeah. Uh, the effects of the Internet, the effects of screens. Um, I don't think in some ways we'll even sort of know sort of the the impact of all this probably for some time to come but we certainly are seeing it and i do think that the young men entering seminary in any age are products of their age so it looks different today than it did when i was a young person and and when i was young it was different than it was you know the generation ahead of me so how can the church today um not see this as um you know a, a, a weighty a problem but actually an opportunity how can we help these men to mold their human personality uh, in such a way that, that they can maintain healthy relationships. Because in order to mediate Jesus Christ, it always happens through our humanity. Mm. So the, the field of psychology has become very important, and not just sort of, sort of a pop psychology or psychology that's kind of a self-help or something, but really grounded in a Christian anthropology uh, with a Catholic lens, uh, knowing the role of grace, knowing the role of, of, of um, forgiveness uh, that needs to happen, knowing that we are weak, uh, but again, really just kind of leaning into uh, the opportunities to grow with God's help and grace to become really the man that God wants each person to be. Um, and so we're just really blessed with, with an outstanding psychologist who knows um, what it means to be a Catholic uh, therapist and psychologist and, and to kind of take the stigma away. I do think yeah. having someone on faculty in the formation faculties interacting with the guys, giving formation conferences, has his door open can do one-on-one, -on -one, can do groups, can just do a, a little check-in. Uh, one thing that we've started doing now is it happened for many years. The church has always had sort of standard psychological tests before admittance into seminary. Used to be kind of thought, well, this will kind of weed out someone who's just clinically, you know, who's just maybe uh, crazy. And there's better words than that. And that's not obviously a technical word. Sure. But but now it's it's really used as a growth opportunity. So this is a tool. And what does this reveal about yourself. So there's kind of formal meetings where uh, the, the new seminarian can meet with our psychologist, go through the psychological report, meet with the formator. What are some, what does this suggest for areas of growth? So we don't see it as kind of a, a negative thing, a hoop you have to jump through just to kind of get ordained, but actually we're about the business of growth. And, and that goes again throughout our entire life. And that should be the case again, really in any profession. I just think it's a privileged atmosphere in the seminary where there can be the, the fraternal support, uh, the sacramental support, the prayer support, uh, and and it really is a, is a place that even if a man doesn't end up being ordained ultimately, 
um, all seminarians are going to be growing and will become, I think, better men because of the process, whether they end up maybe going to be uh, married and having a family or going into the world in some way. Um, it's just a great opportunity to grow and mature. We are honored and privileged to be joined by Paul Ruff, Director of Counseling Services at the St. Paul Seminary right. here in St. Paul, Minnesota. Correct. Just at a high level, Paul, why why is it so important for seminarians right. to focus on their mental right. health in this way? And maybe I'll give a little bit of sort of uh, arc of sort of how mental health things are uh, uh, included in the discernment process as well as in the preparation process of human formation. Uh, forever, uh, as, as forever, for many, many years, for decades now, and I used to do some of them, there's been a psychological assessment process for, for, any, for, men as for any man who's coming come in. into the seminary. And so before yeah. I was in-house, I used to do those. Now that I'm in-house, I don't do those. We've sure. got other fine people doing them. So we've always wanted to make sure the church believes that you know, the, the spiritual builds on the human and that we've got a, a good foundation inside the man. Not that he has to be flawless or doesn't have some issues he's bringing in, but they have to not be grave impediments to being able to really partake freely in a formation process. He has to be able to make himself available in that way. So we really do a lot of vetting of the men through Father Bloom and his fine work in the vocation office. Uh, For a man even to get advanced for recommendation to us, he's gone through quite a number of steps, including a very intensive psychological assessment that looks at his developmental history, sexual history, general psychological testing parameters around intelligence and uh, looking for any possible pathology. Uh, And then we meet as a team to admit the man. Often on admission, we'd say, this guy makes the cut. He can definitely use a formation program and contribute as a member of a formation community in positive ways. But here's a couple of flagged areas, maybe some family of origin issues where there are particular uh, upsets in the developmental history around divorce or around uh, a, p- a parent who maybe had some particular struggles with mental health themselves or sure. alcohol. So there may be those pieces. And then the messiness of just being a person who develops as a young person in our culture. How have they made sense out of themselves and their life up to now? And where do they might, might need a little bit of support in that? Issues around anxiety are quite common. Yeah. We have a group now that, that is really for people learning how to manage anxiety in more effective ways. Uh, some issues around depression, and then some issues around interpersonal capacities. Can this person really be a bridge and not an obstacle? And what parts of him, none of us are completely pure bridges <laughs> in bringing yeah. people to Christ, but what parts of the man might be uh, uh, strengthened or fortified or or healed through some counseling as well as all the very, very essential spiritual and communal formation work that we do with men. It's become more common in seminaries now, and I think will become increasingly common to have a psychologist. I think there was a time in the church back in the 70s and 80s where the church stepped aside and let the psychological be too predominant. Sure. Then I think there was a pushback, and rightly so, against that. that The psychologist should never be the last voice about a man's discernment. But he can be an interesting and helpful voice in in terms of helping people understand the capacities the man has and doesn't have. So I think we're brought in as a a support to the other formation that's going on. And the intellectual formation, the spiritual formation, the pastoral formation are every bit uh, as much and more in the forefront I'd say we're more working on the foundation of being able to, to help a man with some remedial areas of development and growth. Sure. 
You mentioned the psychological assessment. This may be more of an operational question, but are those pretty standard from, from diocese to diocese? So at our, you know, the St. Paul Seminary yes. or St. John Vianney College Seminary in town here even, you've got um, double-digit different dioceses sending. So we, is, is there we, some we have, differences from diocese to diocese? There are some differences, and there's dif differences in terms of availability for a testing psychologist and assessment psychologist. Sure. And there's differences about what tools are used in different areas. Sure. So we do have a standard protocol that we send out and, and, a, and a standard assessment mock-up that we've given, redacted from any names of this is what the product should look like, this is what we're looking for. So everyone knows what we're looking for. Everybody knows our preferred instruments. Not everyone's able to comply with every piece of that. Sometimes when a man comes in, we say, we still need to do this piece. Sure. The Rorschach we found nationally, by national standards, is an important piece. A lot of places don't have those capacities. So we will often refer a man to complete that after he's here, if we see reason that they could answer some questions for us. Sure. Okay. Awesome. So that's sort of up front. Um, how about once guys are in the seminary, what, what yeah. should they be focusing on? What resources are available to them? And sure. how does the mental health piece of it work during yeah. this very formative time and right. what should set the stage for their, their priesthood, God willing? Yes. One, one process that we've started the last couple of years, the man has done all this investment in a psychological workup. And now psychological work, workups aren't magic x-rays of a person's capacities, but they do give some information. And often the man went through at a time where he was looking to hear, did I make the cut or not? Right. And wasn't able to take in the nuances of that. So dioceses have invested in that, that instrument. Uh, the man's invested his time. So I sit down or one of our other therapists sits down, one of our other counselors sits down with the man, reviews the psychological assessment, and says, do you understand this? What parts do you agree with, disagree with? And then what does this tell you <clears throat> about what some targets for your formational work might be? And then we help the man convey that to his formator, the person who oversees his, what we call the external formation sure. at the seminary. Those have been very helpful meetings, I think both for the men to start to get a sense of reflectively how to think about their growth, not am I okay or not, but what are the areas of growth that I could target? Uh, what further assessment, what might we need? There's a couple of men with specific learning disabilities we're discovering that really haven't been as fully assessed as they need to be. So we're looking at how do we target services for men who are intellectually very capable but have been handcuffed by that. Uh, for other men, there might be issues around family of origin issues that they really want to spend some time with the counselor unraveling. I have been very moved and, and edified by the, the lack of stigma uh, for taking part in counseling at our seminary. I think this younger cohort, this, this generation, is generally more open to the possibility and we never want it to be uh, dr you know, driving the process. Yeah. But I think they really are willing to avail themselves and come forward quite transparently. So most of the men at the seminary come in to see one of us. And it could be once, it could be many times. Uh, but really with specific purposes of how do I, what are the impediments that I need to get out of the way so I can be that bridge, so I can be the joyful Catholic leader instead of a man who's kind of struggling under some burden that really deserves to be resolved and the man deserves more freedom from. Today we are joined by Jeff Caven. You spend a lot of time and have spent a lot of time around leaders throughout the church and throughout the world. Um, in your mind and in your experience and looking at it through uh, the theological and scriptural lens that you said you soaked in, what makes a good, authentic leader for today's church? Sure. 
Well, I think uh, you know a good leader in today's in today's church is a person who, uh, like Jesus, uh, a person who loves people. Uh, a good leader loves people. Uh, a good leader, if you love people, you will care for people. You'll watch out for people. Uh, you'll listen to people and their their views and what they uh, what they have to what they have to say. So I think a, a good leader is someone who has a vision, and they have a gift for being able to carry out that vision by working with the right people to get to get that done. And uh, they don't care who gets the credit. You know, when you're a leader and, and you're all caught up in you, you're the thing, you're it. Um, that's usually a poor leader because. Their, their leadership tends to come back around to themselves rather than yeah. uh, to the Lord and his vision and to, to uh, help people become uh, all that God has called them to be. I think in one word I would say a leader is magnanimous. You know, a leader is not, there's an opposite word that we don't use very often, pusillanimous, but a magnanimous, a magnanimous person is a person who gives freely. And you, you want to work with people so that they can do what God has called them to do. And I think a leader keeps a team on point, you know, that uh, there's so much noise out there in the world right now. And uh, you, can get, you can get caught off guard and you can go down trails, rabbit trails and all kinds of things. But keeping your eyes on Jesus and, uh, and being a doer of the word, not just a, a declarer, not someone who's just saying it, but you, you do it. All of that really goes into uh, being, a, a, I think, a great leader. And the, the epitome, of course, is Jesus. Sure. Jesus was a great leader. Absolutely. When you look through your Bible timeline, lots of examples of very good, strong leadership and, and lots of examples of failed leadership. What, mm -hmm. what themes about leadership you know, kind of come out in, in the Bible, would you say, or what does the Bible have to teach us about In the, about well, in the Bible, you have all kinds of examples of, you know, of leadership. I think the, one of the first people that we have, of course, is Noah. You know, and Noah was a leader, and he was a leader of, of, uh, of three sons and their wives. And uh, God had basically had it with this creation, was going to start over, and he worked with Noah. And Noah, uh, in the face of opposition, certainly during that time, built an ark. You know, it's like, why are you building an ark? Well, just am, because God told me to. It didn't make sense, but well, what are you going to do with the ark? Well, we'll see, you know. But he was, a, he was a great leader. I think Abraham was a tremendous leader. In fact, the scripture says that one of the reasons God chose Abram to be the father of this people, the Hebrews, was that he taught his children. And that, that's part of being a great, a great leader is to live your life as though there is one God and you're going to teach your children. So, you know, his leadership skills really were developed to the point where for us as modern day Christians, he's, he's our father in faith too. And, uh, and then Moses was a great leader, and Moses learned about delegation, that he found that he was uh, overworked, he, he was burnt out, and God said, well, let's uh, give, give the responsibility to 70 other people. Now, you and I might say, give it to two or three, but 70, that must have been a lot that he was doing, and, and, uh, and, and he, he did that. There are also examples of good leaders that were bad fathers, you know, like David. David was an amazing king and a leader, certainly the epitome of what it meant to be a king in Israel, but yet his own sons, like Absalom, and his own sons 
uh, it didn't fare so well, you know. And you, sometimes you see that in the world today where you see men or women who are great leaders in corporate America and lousy leaders at home. The translation isn't, uh, isn't, isn't made there. Isaiah was a great leader in the Old Testament. Hosea was a great leader in the New Testament. Uh, and so you have, a, you have a lot of good examples. But then in the New Testament, you have the two super saints, the super apostles, Peter and Paul, and both had really different leadership styles. And uh, you know, Paul went to the Gentiles and Peter to the Jews and uh, just different, different uh, leadership styles and we can learn so much from them. The Blessed Virgin Mary was a leader. Mm. The epitome of leadership back to Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. Recording today on the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul, too, right. so so a nice tie-in there. Um, when you're looking at it from a, a, a Catholic perspective, I suppose it'd be fair to say that to be a good leader, you also need to be a follower. You need to be a disciple, right? Mm-hmm. You've done a good job in your work and your ministry really kind of breaking down and defining discipleship, not just, you know, the textbook definition, but how to live that out. Um, walk us through that a little bit. How do you kind of break down and frame up discipleship? What does sure. it mean to be a disciple in this day and age? Well, that's a good question. What does it mean to be a disciple in the modern era, or what I would call an, an activated disciple? Yes. You, when you go back and you look at the relationship between Jesus and his followers, a lot of times we don't look at what that relationship looked like. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't look at the actual... Um, relationship between the rabbi and the disciple. And I was very blessed in that, uh, you know, in the, I left the Catholic Church. Uh, that's not why I was blessed, but I left the Catholic Church in my, in my early 20s, and, and I was immersed into a whole decade of studying the early, early church in Jerusalem with some of the greatest teachers from Hebrew University and uh, around the United States. <coughs> around the United States. And and I, I was able to, to see the relationship between Jesus, the rabbi, and the disciples who are Talmidim, or their disciples. And what you have there is you don't have uh, a charismatic leader simply giving talks around the country, and people are like, I like his style, you know, I, I want to follow this guy. This guy's pretty cool, you know. Yeah. That isn't what this is about at all. But what it's about is the rabbi-disciple relationship, and that is that a a rabbi actually invited a small number of people to be around him for a three to five, six, seven-year period where he would teach them, and they they would observe him, and they would eventually go out and make disciples of their own in this vein of thought. And so the average number of disciples that a rabbi had in Jesus' day was five, and Jesus, of course, had 12, for theological reasons, 12 tribes. Uh, the great Hillel had 70, and uh, most of the other ones had, like Gamliel had five to eight disciples, which Paul was a disciple of the great Gamliel. It mentions uh, in uh, today's reading, in today's reading on this feast of, of Paul. So the idea of being a disciple is one who is chosen, and you respond to being chosen by saying yes, I will be with you, Jesus. And the goal of that is for you to become like Jesus. But you can't become like Jesus unless you are with Jesus. And so this now is going to be an invitation to live with him, to observe him, to obey him. And the the end goal here is that you will be like your master. You'll be like the master. 
So discipleship is uh, a lifestyle. Discipleship is is forming your entire life around Jesus. Another way to put it is that the shape of your day is influenced by the love of your life. So mm-hmm. if you're into football, the shape of your day will reflect it. If you love, if you love uh, skiing, the shape of your day will reflect it. If you love Texas Hold'em, the shape of your day will reflect it. But if you are completely and utterly in love with Jesus Christ, the shape of your day will reflect it. It's not, it's not just a thought, which is what I would call kind of regular Christianity out there that, oh, yeah, I agree with him and I really like his style. But it's more of uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to order my whole life around him. And, and that's what a disciple is. And so I think of myself, number one, as a disciple of Jesus. And, uh, and then from there, I am a, a husband who is a disciple. I'm a father who's a disciple, a grandfather, a teacher to seminary as a disciple of Jesus. And that's something that nobody can take from you. Delighted and honored to be joined by Father Philip Bochansky, Executive Director of Courage International, which is an apostolate for men and women with same-sex attraction and those who love them. Catholic teaching on homosexuality and transgenderism is well-documented, but often misunderstood. Fair? Probably agree with that statement? I agree with that, for sure. Let's start with one common misconception. Can you pray the gay away? Is that possible? Well, Aside from whether it's even possible, it's certainly not what the Catholic Church expects people to even try to do. Um, you know, there's really important distinctions that the Church makes in its teaching about sexual morality in general and, and homosexuality in particular. We distinguish the person who's always good because we're created in the image and likeness of God uh, from that person's inclinations uh, or desires or emotions and that person's actions. So, the Church's teaching is clear that uh, that sexual actions between people of the same sex are always immoral, always wrong, because they're always excluding complementarity, the relationship between man and woman, and they're always excluding the possibility of procreativity. However, while the church's teaching is clear on actions, the church is equally clear that to experience an attraction or a desire is not a sin, not in itself, right? We have to be responsible for not putting ourselves in situations for our desires to be stirred up. We need to make good decisions about what we do with our desires and how we feel, uh, but it's not a sin to feel a feeling. So there's not any sense in which um, the church expects or would require or obligate anybody to, as the saying goes, pray the, pray the gay away, right? We don't have to become straight uh, in order to, uh, to be holy and to be a saint. Um, this is not. This is where we are separated from um, from ev- evangelical Christians who would see that as a sin in itself. So, yeah, I, I think um, we have to start with understanding where the church is coming from on that. Um, the other thing too is it, it doesn't just affect people who are living with this experience themselves, but it becomes an issue for their families too, right? right? Because you know we have to help parents to understand that it's not about fixing the situation with their their child or with their family, um, but learning to love one another in the context of this experience, which affects everybody in the family so deeply. So, um, so I'm not a psychologist. I'm, it'd be a little bit out of my lane to say, you know, does therapy help a person to understand himself or herself better and have an effect on their their feelings and attractions? I think in some cases, maybe you know, they can head in that direction. But to to start out uh, with that as a goal often doesn't help the person to 
to find what they're looking for. But more importantly than that, the church isn't requiring or expecting anybody uh, to do anything to change their attractions. The church is simply trying to help us all to orient our behavior uh, along God's plan for sexuality and relationships. Sure. So you, I think you kind of did this in a sense, but how might one easily just sort of summarize the elevator pitch for Catholic Church teaching on homosexuality and articulate it to somebody who, who isn't familiar with this teaching? Well, it goes back to um, God, the way that God creates us, right? Genesis 1.27, God creates us in his image and according to his likeness and male and female. And so to be in the image of God means we're made for relationship. To be in the likeness of God means our relationships have to be based on a sincere gift of self, a total gift of self. Uh, and then in the same breath that the scripture reveals that we're made for loving relationships, it reveals that we're male and female, which means everything about our sexuality, our bodies, what we can do with our bodies, our desires and attractions, relationships, uh, and intimate actions, all of that is evaluated based on, is this leading me to live out my primary vocation, which is to make a sincere gift of myself uh, in a loving relationship. So when a relationship is based on uh, that truth from the scripture that we're male and female, so complementarity, um, and that because we're male and female, we can follow God's very first commandment to human beings, which is be fruitful and multiply, that the love which God blesses between a man and woman is intended to be fruitful. Then we realize that, well, it's intended to be fruitful because that love is supposed to be an image of God's love, which is permanent and faithful. Well, then we have the, the context for um, God's plan or purpose for sexual intimacy. And it's holy and good and fulfilling when it's in the context of a permanent faithful relationship, marriage, between a, uh, where, where the two people are complementary in nature, man and woman, and their relations are open to having children. Okay? Uh, Whenever the church has to say that a particular action or relationship or desire is immoral or, or not what God wants, it's applying that set of criteria, right? So adultery, fornication, pornography, masturbation, contraception, they're all wrong for the same reason, which is that some part of that plan, permanence, faithfulness, complementary procreativity, is missing. And when you take something out of that plan, then it has a serious impact on the spiritual life and the relationship of the people involved. Okay, so where does the church's teaching on homosexuality come from? Same place, because rela sexual relations between people of the same sex uh, are always, they're, they're not complementary. The two people have the same, same bodily and sexual nature, and they can't by their nature be procreative. That when those things are missing, people certainly love one another, they certainly have affection and care for one another, but to make that into a sexual relationship is not going to get them where they want to go because we perceive and believe that, that complementary procreativity really have to be part of a sexual relationship for it to be fulfilling and holy in God's plan. Today we're joined by Jason Adkins, Executive Director and General Counsel of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Has politics replaced religion in the American consciousness? That's a, that's a really great question, and uh, a lot of people that politics has taken on a quasi-religious role. I think one way to think about it, Phil, is that we have to start from the premise that the line between good and evil runs through every human heart, and that's a line from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When you understand that reality, it's, it's harder to um, other the other, if you will, or, or look at 
the evil in the world fundamentally being outside or somewhere else. And I think that's why politics has taken on this quasi-religious dimension. No longer do we focus the struggle between good and evil within our own lives. We see the battle between good and evil as as forces outside of us duking it out. The problem is always somewhere out there. It's never you know, right here, you know, who crucified our Lord? I did, you know, you yeah. did. So yeah. I think that's part of the problem is with secularization, we've lost the sense of where that ultimate battle between good and evil lies and that it's it's in our own hearts and with the struggle against sin and not some sort of forces led by some other team, you know, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, liberals, whatever. Um, really, it, it, that that battle between good and evil starts within the human heart. And when you have that sense of it, then you're less likely to give politics sort of a quasi-religious or spiritual dimension. Joined by Deacon Kyle Etzel, seminarian and transitional deacon. You know, he's a pretty down-to-earth, relatable guy. Uh, you've used this in a variety of ways during your time in seminary, which which I think is really cool. Um, you've had opportunities to uh, fulfill that desire to reach out to young adults that you were talking about with Father Tolleson and others. Tell me mm-hmm. about... Uh, beads and beers and some of the stuff you've been doing at St. Mary's in Lower Town, St. Yes. Paul, and then Coriesu here yes. at the seminary as well. Well, yeah, these are good. It's it's dangerous to call a down to earth guy down to earth to his face because it can ruin the down to earthness. Like, you know, let it go to my head. You're going far too deep. I'm not. For me now. <laughs> I don't. No, it won't go to my head. Hard, I have a mustache on my face right now, so yeah. nothing can go to my head too much. Well, I think I do think, like, not to get too far off on a tangent, but <laughs> I do think there is a stigma about seminarians sometimes of like they're very pious, they fit yeah. a certain mold and cookie cutter, yeah. and I think a lot of people even. Catholics are surprised when they actually hang out with you guys and meet you, and it's not just a deacon, Kyle. Like, yeah. Just how normal, yeah, and relatable. I mean, you guys are, and, and everyone's I mean, like, different, you know. Yeah, everyone's different. Different, different is like the Minnesota way of saying like, I mean, there's like we're weird too. I mean, like not in like any bad way, but like, like we we read stuff for fun that like normal people, yeah, that would is like weird. be put to sleep by, you know. That's weird. So there's stuff like that. That's like. It's like low key weird, not not threatening weird. Yeah, you know, but um, yeah, most seminarians are pretty normal. We don't really do weird, you know, which Father Taporn's favorite yeah. saying. But um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think I I it was recently pointed out to me that there's there's kind of been this like weird break in in the church's view of I don't know, clergy or something where it's like, if, if you're pious or, or, you know, whatever that, you know, people have like these weird definitions for pious, which is yeah. like ac- piety is actually piety a is virtue. Actually a really good thing. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but like it's, it's a word we use to describe like sort of like pompous or stuffy or yeah. like holier than thou. Yeah. Holier than thou would probably and, be a better and so, right, piety? So like you're either that or you're pastoral, which has been like used to describe like you're just nice yeah which is also not what pastoral is pastoral is like i'm willing to like walk with you toward the lord whatever that means yeah that might mean lifting you up when you're down on yourself it might mean correcting you because you're doing something dumb yeah you know so um i actually think that the seminary like i know seminarians um know a lot of them 
I think most seminarians today are trying to heal that rupture a little bit and bring the pastoral and the pious Kind well, it's a false dichotomy, together. right? Yeah, right, if right. You pull those like, together, I guess, like they're that trying has the to. Of a really great priest. They're that's, trying to uncover the like the, the real thing, which both of these things are not. But they're trying yeah. to uncover the like, ha ha! Look, actually, the church has taught that this should be the way the whole time. Yeah. So you can't you can't be cold and unfeeling because that's being a crappy pastor. Yeah. But you also can't just like throw out the teaching of the church right. or or good liturgy right. or or beauty you know like we need those things too so um it's not it's not a war it's the th- both of those things are needed and i think that's really um i think there's a lot of down-to-earth seminarians yeah i mean if i'm down to earth man <laughs> there's a lot better guys over there than i am you know so sure yeah there so i took us down a tangent there but that's okay your young adult work. Yes, young adult work. Beads and beers, Corriezu, St. Mary's. Yeah, so um, Beads and Beers uh, started out just like, I guess it was last year we started doing some of these, and it was just kind of a walking rosary. It wasn't called Beads and Beers until this summer. It was just like a walking rosary in Lower Town, which is a really clunky title. And um, it usually resulted in stopping at Barrel Theory um, at 7th and Wakota in Lower Town, St. Paul, um, for a beer afterwards. But that wasn't like a necessarily always a part of it. But it sort of, this group just sort of coalesced. And it's never, I don't think it's ever been exactly the same crew, but there's like regulars. Yeah. And they regularly bring others. Um, some of them, you know, regular, you know, devout young adult Catholic types, sometimes atheists, you know, whatever, whoever their friends are. Um, one of our regulars, um, who I won't name cause he would be upset with me if I did, but, um, he's, he's, uh, he's in RCAA, but when he started coming to beads and beers, he is was like a hardcore Protestant, like, wow. like very, very smart and like deep, uh, in the, in like Protestant theology and studying the fathers, which is always sort of a, can become a hairy situation for a Protestant because those church fathers, they can be dangerous. Right. Um, but it was like the first time I've ever seen a Protestant, like pray the rosary, but it's just cause he'd met young adult Catholics who were serious about Christ and he didn't have any questions about that. And he's like, well, if, if it seems good to them and it's scriptural, Hail Marys are 90% scripture, right? seems good to me. Yeah. Now he's in RCA, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think like the beads and beers thing really is, is just kind of the, how do you how do you re- like save the the third space you know we used to have like the parish was like the place where the community gathered you had your home and you had you know like whatever kind of the like the vfw or something you know and then you had the the parish 
and like they were all like a where the community came together to love on each other and you know keep involved in each other's lives and we the pair sort of like lost that position or the vfw you know like like these old like you know places intended for gathering yeah but i think in at least in the twin cities the brewery has really like become that spot oh yeah like people gather they're not looking at their they're not you're not you don't go to a brewery and see people sitting in the corner scrolling on their phone or if you do it's like oh that's a weird guy who's over here by himself at the brewery looking at his phone like people are there to socialize and be with their friends you're right and so that's the place we have to be yeah it's just a fact it might not be the brewery maybe it's a bowling alley or if those still exist or you know or whatever you know so but we have to be willing to go into those places um uh, but you also have to be ready to receive the people who you meet in those places, which is kind of the idea of Koryezu, Um where the seminary, you know, opens itself up to um, facilitate an encounter with the Lord uh, for young adults in the Twin Cities. So um, that's like the other part of my heart, right? Like I love going out. I mean, I like drinking beer with cool people, but <laughs> like the best part about beads and beers. In my innermost being. Right. I, I want mean, to be at a brewery. Well, some yeah, some of the time I that's just the truth. I can relate to that. Yeah, but, but you're talking you about know, you, meeting people where they're at. Yeah, you go out. Going out to them. Yeah, but Which is what if, Christ did, right? Right. Well, from town to town, right. people where they're at. But um, if all you ever do is go out and meet people where they're at, like, great. Now what? Yeah. Hey, have you met Jesus? Right. You know, like. Right, the come follow me. Yeah, right. To, yeah, so. at some point. Um, and I think events like Koryezu are like the perfect complement to events like Beads and Beers where it's like, I'm, I, you know, we're, we're at this like low intensity place. We're having a beer, hopefully a good one together. Um, we might not even be talking about super serious stuff. Might just be like, yeah, this is Deacon Kyle. We're having a beer together. We're talking about F1 racing because Deacon Kyle weirdly likes F1 racing. But then at the end of the night, I'm like, hey, next Friday we're having this super cool thing. There'll be some good music, and Jesus will be there. And uh, if you feel like, you know, praying with some people or if you're Catholic, going to confession, you can do that too. Yeah. But not high pressure. That's what Koryezu is. We've just been doing it for 15 years. But other than that, it's not yeah. like a super instituted or like yeah. high pressure thing of any kind. So we're not hounding out pamphlets. Yeah, we're not trying to there's there's no offertory. We're not trying you know, the, we're not passing the basket around. We're like you don't have to even stay for the whole thing. Yeah. It's an open and invitation. It's great to invite people time. to mass, but the mass is like a ritual that um is very intimate and beautiful but can be very intimidating. Yeah. You know, and in its in in its beauty be i mean it's hard to say that there's anything more able to convert a heart than like a a mass reverently celebrated um but we're not limited and um these kind of low like low intensity like high openness big invitation type things i think are kind of really a part of how we can really work like in evangelizing in this age. 
All right, that is a wrap for our best of 2022 edition of the Joyful Catholic Leaders Show. Be sure to subscribe wherever you find your podcasts and follow the St. Paul Seminary on social media and at stpaulseminary.org. On behalf of all of us at the St. Paul Seminary, we wish you a very blessed 2023. As always, thank you so much for listening and may God bless you.